0: Welcome to the Metabolic Health Podcast, the show which helps listeners drop fat, increase muscle mass, and most importantly, prevent or even reverse lifestyle-driven diseases. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Andrew Appleton, as we dive into the root of obesity, diabetes, neurological disorders, and even many cancers. Yes, these are all preventable diseases driven by various lifestyle choices that you can do something about today. Our podcast aims to take complex health topics and turn them into easily digestible information with a practical viewpoint so you can take meaningful actions right now. So join us as we do our part to reestablish the core value of health back to our community. uh are you good with with going with fat sure so i think we can do this uh just for people listening we recorded this one before but for reasons that i can't remember now because it was so long ago i was (laughs) i was in some way dissatisfied with it uh i'll blame andrew but i I don't think it had anything to do with him um (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I guess we'll find out if we're re-recording. Yeah. Thanks, thanks. <laughs> this will yeah. be the one that goes out there. Uh, so I wanted to start with your assessment medically or personally of what fat is from a high level of in terms of what it means in your body. When okay. Most people think about things like cholesterol, like what is fat at the level of actually what's circulating through your bloodstream?
1: Okay. Uh, so fat, obviously one of the three macronutrients and uh, is, e- it is essential and you know, we talked about carbohydrates last time are not actually essential for physiologic function. Uh, fat definitely is. Uh, so our source of fat is from our diet and then that gets incorporated into our body. The way that, that we consume it, so it's basically in uh, triglyceride format. So that comes into your digestive tract. There's digestive enzymes that break that down. We absorb it through the gut. uh, And then it gets uh, sort of broken down into its individual glycerol and fatty acid components. We actually put those back together and then put them in these bundles called chylomicrons. Uh, Why does the body do that? Because fat uh, and water as in uh, the aqueous component of the bloodstream don't mix very well so they have to go in these nice uh, spherical chylomicron packages and then that allows them to be transported to other places in the body so unlike uh, carbohydrate and protein which basically get absorbed into the bloodstream, go to the liver first. Uh, Fat actually mainly goes into your lymphatic system and is delivered to all the tissues uh, of your body there and then gets dumped into your circulation. Um, And we have protein receptors on all the cells of our body that can uh, bind to those chylomicrons and, you know, liberate the fatty acids that are inside to, to use those. So where does that fat go? What do we need it for? Well, fatty acids are an integral component of cell membranes, so every single cell in your body has uh, a membrane and the fat is there you know, basically to keep it pliable, which is really important and that's well, I know we'll get into like saturated unsaturated stuff later. Uh, but that has a bearing uh, on that. And then we use fat as a building block for lots of different things like uh, steroid hormones, for example. Uh, and then, of course, we use fat as a fuel source. And uh, that's from from a cardiometabolic standpoint, that's probably the main thing that we focus on is how do we look at fat as a fuel uh, and how do we access that as a fuel source, uh, particularly through the lens of if you're somebody who has excess weight, uh, excess adipose tissue or fat stores, how do you access that to use those stores as energy Uh, to uh, basically deplete those stores over time to bring your weight down and to increase your lean body mass. Is
0: that (laughs) reasonable? Wonderful. I rambled for a while. We'll break that down into (laughs) something that people will actually understand. Cool. So how does the fat you consume relate to the fat that circulates or fatty acids that circulate throughout your body for all of these functions? What's the relation there? Uh, It's
1: mostly transient so after you eat a meal uh, if there's fat content in that meal then you will have a transient increase in the amount of uh, triglycerides in the form of you know of uh, chylomicrons floating around in your blood so that will happen and then that will get deposited into the different tissues in your body Um, then if it's not used right away It'll go and it'll either be stored in uh, in adipose tissue, so that's the the fat tissue in our body, or it'll be used for all of the essential functions that we need it to. So it it can be used in the liver. Uh, we can break it down uh, those components to feed into um, the the Krebs cycle to make energy that we that we utilize. Um, but I mean, it, basically, that's you get this transient rise. It comes down. If you don't use it right away, then your body stores it and it's very uh, adept at doing
0: that. So, is that the way that if someone said, Well, what determines when fat gets used versus fat gets stored? Do you just simplify it and say, Well, when you have too much, it gets stored. When you don't have enough, then it ends up in other places? Or is there a little bit more nuance to how fat ends up on your body versus being used by your body? For sure. There's going to be many
1: different factors because we, I I know we're talking about macronutrients, but of course we don't eat these things in isolation. We eat food, which has a combination of all of the macronutrients. So it, it depends to some extent on what you eat it with. So if you're eating fat alongside really simple processed carbohydrates then that fat is probably mostly going to get stored as fat because you're going to have an insulin spike from the carbohydrate that it was consumed with whereas if you are not taking in very much carbohydrate alongside it then most likely that fat is going to get distributed to be used for other physiologic functions and not necessarily stored and you will and you were more likely use fat as a fuel source rather than carbohydrate in that scenario so in in that context it it definitely depends on that it depends on a lot of hormonal factors as well Um, you know stress uh,
0: inflammation all these things will play a role in how your body is able to utilize it so when you talk about something like stress is there a connect is (laughs) there connection between stress and insulin, like if we're thinking about the base factor, because a really simple way to look at what you just said is when you eat carbohydrates, it pushes up insulin and insulin is a storage hormone. So anything you have alongside that big pulse in insulin is going to be more likely to be stored just by the nature of that relationship. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, the the amount of stress that you have might play a factor in that as well. Well what is the actual thing that stress does that would cause someone to store something like fat or any other nutrient yeah. in a way that maybe would be less consequential for something like weight gain yeah i, I mean
1: the, these things are not super clear in the literature so the the science doesn't really tell us a, a lot about that i mean there are certain things that would be conjectured for example from a hormonal regulation standpoint um people who have a lot of stress are more likely to have higher levels of a hormone called ghrelin uh, which is that your hunger hormone so it sends signals to the, the hypothalamus in your brain that tells you you need to eat more i got lots of that you got lot, lots of ghrelin <laughs> kicking got lots around. Of that. yeah yeah so i mean that that definitely plays a role so even though you might be in an energy excess situation if you still maintain high levels
0: of uh of something like ghrelin then you'll continue to to try to eat Gotcha. And is there a connection between obese clients and that ghrelin relationship? Because things usually get simplified down to energy balance. And of course, there's merit there, right? At the end of the day, from a practical standpoint. Yeah, yeah, there's complex ways that someone can get to a deficit or surplus of calories. And it's not just as simple as, hey, everyone's the same. And the person who eats too much and doesn't exercise enough, ends up in the uh, yeah. ends up in the surplus category. Um, but what other sort of factors, you know, ghrelin and hunger being one of them. Are there other factors that you know of in obese populations or people who tend to struggle more with weight gain that you can point to like something like an overproduction of ghrelin? Sure.
1: So inflammation would be another one associated with with obesity. And I mean that—that's kind of a, a chicken-or-egg thing. I don't know if it's that's the inflammation that contributes to the obesity, or if it's the obesity that contributes to the inflammation. I'm sure that would could be debated either way. Uh, but we know that in uh, in somebody who has higher levels of inflammation, as we might measure with a CRP level on their blood work, um, then it's it's actually harder to access your fatty acid stores to use uh, as an energy source um, through lipolysis, for example. So you might have those fat stores and you might even be eating a lower calorie diet, but because there's inflammation around, uh, you're still unable to access those fat stores effectively. Um, it's a whole lot more complicated than that, uh, and again, these these things are not perfectly well
0: understood. But you know that's another factor that we we certainly consider. I don't want to turn this into a COVID nineteen conversation. But Whoa, okay. I, but <laughs> I do But I do yeah. want to take a sidebar here because it's it's very clear that mm-hmm. if you have a weight issue. Number one, you're more likely to have a negative outcome once infected with COVID. And there's also some evidence to suggest that something like vaccination becomes a less powerful intervention in obese populations. Do you know why that might be? Because maybe I'm asking because maybe there's some crossover between these sorts of things like inflammatory responses and uh, and and weight gain and inflammatory responses and negative outcomes to probably most diseases, not just COVID-19, but COVID-19 is the one that's, you know, at the forefront of everyone's mind.
1: Yeah. I'm, I I don't know offhand. I mean, a- anything I would say would basically be conjecture. I mean, if when you're administering a medication, there's always a, uh uh, like a dose-response relationship based on body size and and uh, bioavailability or distribution through the different tissues of the body. So we know that fat tissue takes up uh, you know medications differently. Uh, how does that translate into something like with the mRNA mRNA technology? Uh, I honestly have have no idea. But yeah, you, you're you're correct in citing that. It's we see worse outcomes. It's a high. It's a risk factor for worse outcomes when you have COVID, um, and uh, but, but I'm, I haven't seen data to say that uh, vaccination is necessarily less effective in um, in the obese or cardiometabolically unhealthy
0: population. Yeah, I've only I've only yeah. seen one study, but it seemed uh-huh. like it was fairly well done uh, but I read it so long ago I can't yeah I can't speak to the you details. can read? Ain't? <laughs> you, mean, okay you can if you can <laughs> believe it yeah. so then getting back to fat when does fat become a legitimate problem and we'll talk about specific types of fat and different foods that are probably worse <laughs> than yep. others hmm. but there is this historical fear of fat consumption and right. we don't necessarily have to get into the history of that because I think most people have heard some element of that story but there are I would say most people are still have some sort of association between consuming fat and being fat and consuming fat and having health problems. So when is that true Mm -hmm. and how does fat become a problem for weight gain or any other health problem that is that is typical for people to face?
1: Yeah. So uh, there's a, a few things there um first uh, just from a body composition standpoint we talk about two different types of fat there's subcutaneous fat and then there's visceral fat the subcutaneous fat which is often the the fat that we see uh, is probably not actually nearly as harmful as visceral fat which is the fat that's literally packed in around your organs usually in the abdomen and so that's when you you get the abdominal obesity or the increasing uh, waist circumference, which is definitely associated with worse outcomes and worse cardiometabolic health. So um, people may have heard about you know sort of the the healthy fat phenotype, uh, and so that's that's what that's essentially uh, referring to. When it comes to oh where 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 do you want to go with with <laughs> this? Um,
0: Yeah, I I think. Here, I'll I'll ask you. So just to make it a little bit more clear, is it the type of fat? Is it too much fat? Is it fat in the presence or absence of some other lifestyle intervention or all of the above? Like if you can point to the things where this is when fat is going to be a problem for you. What do those things typically look like? So I would say
1: for somebody who's overweight, it's typically not because they're solely eating more fat than anything else it's a combination of factors as we've alluded to before so yes it's it's a quality of the food issue and so somebody who's over consuming fat is also likely over consuming ultra uh, processed high you know sugar added foods so you know take take that as it is because we have to look at the diet as a whole um But yeah, so historically, there was a thought that it was the fat that was driving the problem. Enter the uh, low-fat diet fads from from years ago. And we still hear this as uh, first-line advice in a lot of cases, which is unfortunate that you should focus on a low-fat diet. And of course, if you eliminate fat from your diet, the void has to be filled with something else otherwise you're going to be in a very calorie restricted diet which is not sustainable uh, or healthy for people so that's uh yeah that's that's one way to to look at it i think it's it's important to recognize that fat is the easiest thing to overeat from a calorie density standpoint so each you know by by unit weight fat has more calories than carbohydrates or protein so, you know, just pound for pound, it's going to more easily put you in an energy excess scenario than the other things. And so that's why it, it seems like it's probably a good idea to focus on, well, let's bring that down because I want to bring my calories down as my top priority. But I, I would argue that it's the problem is probably more so to do with what you're co-consuming, along with the fat source and that's exactly where i start with people so if you are in that in the cardiometabolically unhealthy population which is you know 40 percent of the adult population um the first place i i steer attention to is actually reducing the carbohydrates
0: yeah and that that makes sense and especially when you think about like most people don't end up being 150 pounds overweight because they're eating really healthy whole foods but their macronutrient ratios are are too, too dominant in one category. Exactly, yeah. Uh And going be, circling back to what you talked to earlier with the uh, relationship between carbohydrates and insulin, then you have this sort of double whammy because number one, those hyper palatable processed foods that people turn towards are number one, the most difficult thing to stop eating because of the nature of, of how they're made to taste. And then you have these combinations of high fat, high sugar, usually from the worst places possible that are creating this relationship between you're eating a ton of calories and a ton of sugar. Your insulin is through the roof and it's just shuttling all of those calories into fat storage right. in a little bit of a crisis mode. And when we did the, uh, when we did the carbohydrates episode, you were talking about something like uh, fructose sometimes from some foods being uniquely problematic, uh, maybe you want to reframe this, but the body seeing too much fructose as a little bit more of a crisis than maybe some other carbohydrates or some other types of sugars. So it immediately stores those uh, quite often uh, in and around the liver, uh, correct? Yeah. Which is why people get fatty liver. I agree with myself on that. (laughs) (laughs) Non-alcoholic fatty liver. So then there's also that As well, it's in those hyper palatable foods, you're getting such a concentration of so many different types of sugars. It's plausible to believe that your body is also more likely to store more of that just by nature of being concerned about, well, I mean, you'd say something about me saying your body can be concerned about itself (laughs) but the reaction of your body being glucose levels are going way too high this needs to be dealt with immediately and fat storage is the quickest and safest way to to shuttle them somewhere
1: yeah yeah so i mean i think what we're basically centering on here is it's insulin is really central to to the problem so when you're eating if you can eat in a way that doesn't give you Massive insulin spikes, then that's going to be advantageous. So if you remove carbohydrate and you, you know, if you if you just eat a pile of fat, as delicious as that sounds, uh, you're not going to get the same insulin spike, and that fat is not going to be immediately just socked away and inaccessible to you to use for uh, for energy. So that's great because then you've got you know, time to use that fat as energy because, you know, you're not only improving your diet, you're also increasing your movement and exercise alongside it in order to become,
0: you know, take real steps towards becoming healthier. So in the absence of carbohydrates, what consequences can there be of overconsuming just fat like if we do this as a thought experiment like someone eats a thousand calories of whatever pure fat you can think of regardless of if it's saturated or monounsaturated or polyunsaturated aside from things like obvious gut distress and upset right what can be the con similar to the consequence of eating more sugar pushes up your insulin too high has all of these negative effects is there something like that in just fat or is that consequence simply not there in the absence of carbohydrates
1: uh i don't think we know so essentially what you're describing is the ketogenic diet yes so i mean maybe not a thousand calories at a time (laughs) just fat but the the traditional ketogenic diet is like more than 70% of your calories are coming from
0: fat. Yeah, I think it's up to 90% if it's it, like ther clinically therapeutic. Yeah, so
1: if you yeah, like childhood epilepsy and right. those sorts of conditions that actually have really good data. Um, yeah, it's it's you know basically you're just eating fat and a bit of protein and that's it. Uh, I have never seen any long-term data on adverse cardiometabolic health effects in that population. Um, You know, it's theoretically possible that you could become acidotic as in the pH levels in your blood drop too far because you're developing so many ketone bodies, although nutritional ketosis is different than other types of ketone generating conditions that are clinically relevant. Yeah, like diabetic ketoacidosis or alcohol induced ketoacidosis, for example. Um, So yeah, there's actually no strong signal that I'm aware of, I think the thing that people mostly point to is if you're eating a really high fat diet is the effect on your cholesterol. And then, you know, by extension, the potential effect on atherogenesis and promoting heart disease.
0: So let's talk about cholesterol then. And let's begin with. There's. There's evidence to suggest that high levels of cholesterol have less to do with the actual quantity of fat you consume than people believe and i'm speaking purely anecdotally here but before the pandemic i i had my blood work done all the time so every three months i'd have my blood work done not because it's necessary just because i have a irresponsible doctor who will give me blood work of whatever (laughs) metrics I want, whatever, whenever I ask for them, which is helpful for me. Uh, and those are things that I'm interested in because I always like to see what happens when I make these different lifestyle changes. And I have seen without question, if I go on a very high fat diet of very high quality foods, no processed foods whatsoever, I can see massive swings in something like my, uh, my cholesterol concentration. Are you doing fasting blood work? Yes, typically. Okay. Typically yep. like 16, 16 to 18 hours fasting blood work. And I see huge, uh, huge swings when I when I eat more towards that side. So is that something that's unique to someone genetically? Like, does that rule actually play out most of the time that you can eat as much fat as you want? It's probably not going to af- affect your cholesterol, at least not anywhere near literally, like for every 10 grams you increase, you see this point increase in your cholesterol score.
1: Yeah, I th- I, it's probably mostly genetic, um, because it, we can't we can't really predict which way it's going to go. So some people on a low carbohydrate diet, which you know ergo means more a more high fat diet, uh, some people will drop their cholesterol, and others will see it go up. Others will see you know the triglycerides go through the roof. Um, so it's it's quite unpredictable, which tells me that it's probably mostly uh, a synthesis uh, issue uh, or a clearance issue or uh, How many LDL receptors you tend to express on your endothelium issue? So there's you know, multiple different pathways at play that might have an impact on that um, But the, the real important question is is that a problem, right? So I think that I'm doing something good for somebody by counseling them On uh, low carb they're losing weight their blood pressures improving their blood sugars improving but their cholesterol has increased so how you know how do I interpret that and continue to counsel that person should I say oh you know all this other stuff looks great but this is happening and that should trump everything and we need to stop this and you know change course Uh, I don't think so Um, I think you know it's it comes down to I think the the main story is how many cholesterol particles you have, not to get too far into the weeds, uh, but like the chylomicrons that I described at the top, we have lipoprotein uh, particles that float through our blood that carry cholesterol. Uh, So that's a nice spherical thing, and then there's a protein attached to that. And the ones that we're most interested in have a protein on them called ApoB. And there's exactly one ApoB on each of those lipoprotein particles in your blood. However, the size of those particles and the amount of cholesterol is quite variable. So, when we measure your cholesterol, we're measuring the contents of those balls. We're not measuring how many of them there actually are. But when we measure ApoB, which is the protein stuck to them, then we can actually figure out how many of them there are. And so, any of any data that I've seen that's looked at this question shows us that the total amount of cholesterol being shuttled around is going to be increased in under those conditions but the total number of those particles is not increased and that is uh, a much more advantageous scenario and a less worrisome scenario because it's the number of particles that seems to be Uh, the real increased risk for developing atherosclerosis
0: is that because more particles means more friction means more inflammation or does anyone really know why that might be well I think uh, more more particles
1: means more opportunities um, for stuff to sneak under your, your endothelium into 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 the space in the blood vessel wall where it can cause a
0: problem gotcha so then with cholesterol how clear is the connection between cholesterol levels and something like heart disease? Or is there so many cofactors in the way that it's hard to really say high cholesterol is definitely a problem? Because usually when you uh,
1: so high cholesterol is a problem for sure. Okay. I, we, uh, the evidence is, is very good. So, uh, but you have to, you have to question what's the population that that's actually tested in so there are you know millions and millions of data points that have been shown and reshown that on average an elevated ldl cholesterol is associated with an increased risk for heart disease and we also know that if you treat that with medication like statins and lower those levels that you prevent heart attacks and bad outcomes from happening. So do you know, sorry
0: to cut you off. Do you know yeah. what the the actual prevention is from statins? Like, do you have a metric in your head of uh, like a like a relative risk? Yeah. Like if or, you're if you're you know, if your risk is five in a thousand, does it reduce it to, to like four in a thousand, one in a thousand?
1: Uh, I, yeah, I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, but it's it's. So we would look at you know number needed to treat. So how many patients do you actually need to treat to prevent one event? And I think statins are probably in the you know hundred ish range. But we can we can double check that and, what, and come back to it.
0: what's a good what's a good metric for that, like when you think about the amount of people you need to treat in order to to save a life, let's say something as, as straightforward yeah. as that. What is an actual good number to see for that? Well, so a number needed to treat of 100 is it was
1: fantastic. If you're talking about something like cholesterol, because because of the prevalence of the disease so heart disease atherosclerosis is you know it's ubiquitous every single human being who ages uh, will develop some form of atherosclerosis and you know it's it's one of the top three uh, causes of mortality of everyone so because it's so common if you you know take one in a hundreds you put uh, 100,000 people on statins, then you're going to prevent a thousand events in a year like that's that's hugely significant.
0: And is that is that also a risk analysis, too, because Any medical intervention is going to have some amount of risk. So the quicker you get to a positive outcome, the less you have to worry about the negative outcomes associated with medicating X amount of people. Like if you medicate a million people, there's going to be a certain percentage of people who have a problem with the interaction with the medication. That's right. So you're you're for statins, 100 percent. Yeah, because it is a it is for whatever reason, I don't understand enough. So I, about like, it to I, speak to it, but it is a controversial medication in some circles. Yeah, some circles. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I can see the thought bubble yeah. in your head.
1: I'm I, no, I'm definitely pro-statin. So um but in the right person. And it, it depends on your risk. And so we have to look at a bunch of different factors. We have to calculate your cardiovascular risk and determine whether or not you'll you specifically have a good chance of benefiting from this intervention uh, So you know personally I like to treat people with non-medication interventions first and give that an honest effort and and ability to make a, a change over a course of time um, but there's lots of circumstances where the risk is just so high that medications really are the best tool to at least reduce risk in the short term uh, and then give you some extra time while you're working on the other stuff. So but you also have to recognize like, the population that I see is a sick population. So these are people with chronic diseases, lots of comorbidities. And, you know, they're not the 30, 40 year olds uh, that we're seeing in in primary care focusing on preventative medicine in that population it would be very rare to reach for a statin but when you've got your you know 60 70 year old with hypertension and diabetes and uh, and already has some you know heart failure and all sorts of things then you know absolutely that population is more likely to benefit from an intervention like that
0: so there's there's two you know two basic groups of people the person who is of a healthy weight somewhat active, does their best to eat well, and then you have someone who is in the overweight to obese category, maybe is already making some changes, but isn't in a great state of health and probably didn't get there from eating well and exercising. So those two groups of people, for preventative, for interventional, when you think of diet, exercise, lifestyle interventions, actually, let's just s- stick to diet right now. Sure. Do you have a specific Uh, recommendation for types of fats to consume from these foods in these relative quantities? And is it the same for both groups? Or would you say if you're a healthy individual and you just want to be preventative, eat this way. If you're already moving towards uh, disease, you should think about eating this way when it comes to fats. I would
1: say so for both groups. We're going to try to avoid hydrogenated fats which are becoming you know less common in the marketplace anyway So we mostly don't have to worry about that Um, The the thing that's different between those two groups that I would recommend From an intervention standpoint will be the relative amount of carbohydrate restriction Not necessarily the constituents of the fat or the type of fat that you're consuming so my my advice for the type of fat that you're eating in both groups is pretty much going to be the same Um, in the uh, metabolically diseased category you know we might look a little bit more at trying to cap the total amount that you're consuming so you really don't end up in an energy excess scenario because that's going to hamper your ability to to lose weight which is often you know one of the things that needs to happen alongside lots of other changes um but yeah, let's talk about the types of fat. So as with our top line dietary advice for everything, focusing on whole food uh, sources is going to be the best way to go. So that means you know your fat's coming in uh, in the form of uh, animal products, so meat and dairy, uh, and it's coming in uh, oils that we're going to use in cooking. Uh, and then we can talk, Yeah, you know, we can talk about the different types of oils and whether or not there's any, <laughs> anything to focus on there. Uh, and then there's certain, you know, fatty plant sources like avocados, for example, which are uh, a great source of fat. And that's your, that's your answer to that? Uh, so, I mean, we should always be focusing on, on whole foods, uh, stuff that has added oils, you know, things that are deep fried. Uh, things that have you know this industrial quantities of, of oils added to them with names that you can't pronounce are probably things that we should stay away from but you know I just try to encourage people not to worry so much about um, if you're taking it in in the form of uh, meat especially, honestly don't worry too much about it.
0: So if you're a, let's assume we're only talking to a, a healthier side of the population right now. Would you say that as long as you're eating whole foods and that's where you're getting the majority of your fat from, even if you eat a considerable amount of something like red meat, butter, whole eggs, this is not something that you're really going to have to worry about the specifics of?
1: Yeah, if that's your current dietary pattern and you're a healthy weight and your metrics look otherwise good, I see no problem with that.
0: Is there something specific about the Western population that makes Saturated fat is the fat source that is typically most demonized. Maybe takes a backseat to hydrogenated. Sure. Uh, but I think, yeah, fats, I, I don't but,
1: think we really have to talk about because hydrogenated stuff is like policy has essentially disallowed
0: it from the marketplace. Right. But saturated yeah. fat, egg yolks, butter, yep. uh, red meat is there something that makes that particularly? is there something (laughs) that makes that particularly problematic for western civilization because you see uh in a lot of uh asian countries meat is eaten in in much greater quantities than it is here you look at certain african populations you see the same thing without You know, maybe there's an issue of how things are measured and how the health of the population is measured and how those things are tracked. That can certainly be part of the problem. But let's assume that's not the issue. And there's certain populations around the world that just don't seem to suffer the same way as us. Do you think that's something that is uh, potentially, you know, a genetic consequence of, of, of being of, let's say, European descent? Or is that just because of all the other stuff that we eat these things with on this side of the world, uh, we suffer from those consequences a little bit more? I assume it's more the latter. Um, you know, this this all this is all
1: based on the premise that the saturated fat is the thing that's actually harmful. Right. Uh, And any data that exists there is it's purely epidemiologic associations. There is no causal relationship known. Uh, But the the conventional stuff that gets talked about is uh, increased saturated fat, especially red meat, especially uh, and, and processed meat. But let's kind of put that aside because it's in the processed category. So, you know, just red meat seems to be the one that people get really upset about. Uh, So high saturated fat um, Is associated with increased inflammation is associated with maybe the increased risks of certain cancers and heart disease Um, but these studies are so Poorly done and have so many confounders that you really can't draw anything conclusive from that whatsoever Uh, And I think the tide is actually starting to to turn a bit and we need to be honest about the fact that you know a meat source—it's not just saturated fat in it. There's also unsaturated fat in there, and you know excellent protein and a lot of other micronutrients that are really important. Because again, we eat food. We don't just eat the fat that's in it, unless you're strange and cut off the fat on the side and just eat that. But right, <laughs> maybe you do that. <laughs> I don't know. But well, yeah. people
0: cook their <laughs> yeah. people cook their steak in uh, in cups of butter. Sure. Yeah. I mean, and even butter has, you know, other
1: nutrients in it that you're not going to get from things like margarine, for example. Right. Um, So, yeah, I, I honestly I think the Western population isn't necessarily uniquely predisposed to have harm from saturated fat intake. It probably is more to do with other aspects
0: of our lifestyle and diet. Overall. Well, and you see that a lot of the times when people uh, when people immigrate into North American culture and then that population of people start to have all of these problems that they don't have in their home country because they're exposed to that sort of Western lifestyle. When you talk about how the low value of nutritional research, and not because of the effort of people who are trying to get it right, but just because of the nature of trying to do nutrition research. It's not right. its not something you can properly control in order to get reliable results. Right? Is there any type of nutritional research or nutritional exploration that you do see maybe more value in than others? So for instance, do you find it's helpful to compare populations around the world and what they're Almost like blue zone diets uh, where you compare this population to that population to this population over here. Well, this population has very low heart disease. Why might that be? Let's look at what they eat and compare it to what we eat over here. And maybe there are some answers there. Do you have any do you have any uh, sorts of research branches like that where you would say these are things that I think are maybe more worth looking at or is it all essentially junk?
1: I think it's interesting. And uh, I certainly wouldn't dismiss that, that sort of stuff. The comparisons are, are always very interesting, especially when you have uh, relatively homogeneous populations. So, you know, they're, they're genetically very uh, similar within that group because then that allows us to look at things at, you know, the genetic polymorphism level compared to another homogenous group over here. So we'd want to, you know, see what the similarities or differences are at that level. Then we look at their lifestyle practices, dietary practices, and compare those. Um, so there's lots of interesting things to, to look at there. I would consider that mainly uh, hypothesis generating and not really, uh, it's, it's not telling us conclusively anything in particular, but it raises more interesting questions definitely that can be used in future prospective research.
0: OK, so moving to metrics, somebody. OK, let's just back up for a
1: second. So we, we talked about saturated fat. Right. Um, so we said, you know, probably don't worry so much about the, the quality of the saturated fat that you're getting in whole food sources. But at the same time, you do need a combination of polyunsaturated fat in your diet. So I, I don't I wouldn't recommend eating purely saturated fat. Uh, you do need to get um, unsaturated fats because there are you know omega-3 omega-6 fatty acids are essential our body cannot synthesize those things and they are necessary uh, for you know proper cell membrane function as we as we mentioned before so good sources of that would be uh, like olive oil avocados which are a great source of monounsaturated fat. fat um, Fish seafood sources uh, would be another excellent uh, example.
0: What do you think of a packaged supplemental form of things like omega-3? Do you see any problems with something like that? I don't
1: see. Well, but there can potentially be problems because you have to just consider the source of uh, of that. So the the level of purity and knowing exactly what you're getting in like a fish oil capsule uh, it can be quite variable because you know that industry is not regulated like the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I when I have patients who are on omega three supplements or fish oil supplements, um, I don't tell them to stop. I just want to make sure that they're getting it from you know a, a reasonable
0: quality source. OK, I'm going to you know. s- I'm going to skip back again. I'm going to ask you because you talk about uh, if someone sees unique elevations in cholesterol through some sort of dietary consumption you would assume that, that is, there's a genetic reason why that might be for that individual. Now, do you know of any of any benefit to having that sort of genetic predisposition? Because you think about things like, in most human beings, there's lots of common genetic factors within a population that serve them within that population and where that population is from, right? The most The most obvious example being something like sickle cell anemia in places on Earth where malaria is more prevalent and that being protective against malaria. So when someone comes here where malaria isn't, then it's just a problem. right? Right. Sickle cell anemia is an issue, whereas in their home country, it's probably better to have that condition in a place where there's a high concentration of malaria. So when you think about somebody who's susceptible to these high levels of cholesterol, which can make them more susceptible to something like heart disease, is there a beneficial reason why somebody might have that genetic adaptation?
1: Uh, I, I don't know. I've never seen any arguments you know, one way or the other. I think it's this is a relatively new phenomenon that people are actually taking an interest in. So whether or not we could hypothesize that there's you know a, a biological or physiological benefit to jacking up the cholesterol levels in your blood uh, I'm not I'm not so sure I don't think that that necessarily would equate to you know somebody who's more efficient at utilizing fat as an energy source for example
0: Um, yeah I don't don't know you don't have any non-medical philosophical thoughts or feelings (laughs) on this because these are things I think about all the time because we're always trying to manage these metrics Right. And I always wonder, well, is managing this metric, are we doing it in in a poorly understood way where we're actually costing ourselves something that we're not that we don't understand? Because in most scenarios, I would think that if your genetics have made it this far in the human population, then they got you there in a very specific way. And while the threat that has led to the evolution of this genetic trait, which can now be a problem maybe if not probably is not something that you need to worry about anymore I often get concerned that people you know they they get their blood work done they look at it there's something that's alarming to them they immediately try and bring it down in some way m- through medication or otherwise without understanding if there's an actual cost there that they're that they don't understand do you ever think about those things yeah I do <laughs> that's good. <laughs>
1: uh yeah i mean you just have to remember anytime you take blood work or do any sort of test like that it's a snapshot in time right it's it doesn't tell you what's happening dynamically in the system it's literally just at that moment that that blood came out of your vein into the needle that's what that level happened to be i honestly don't know what the level was 10 minutes later uh, let alone uh, the next day so it it, it only with multiple time points and you know knowing specifically what somebody's doing you know, from an intervention standpoint, can we start to make inferences at the N of one level, whether or not there's a signal signal we need to pay attention to. But the other thing that's important when it comes to interpreting testing, and this is a, a message that I constantly am trying to impart to my medical students, is you know, why was the test ordered in the first place? So if you're getting upset about a value that if you think back and go, I didn't actually need to order that test to begin with, there was no real reason to, there was no symptoms, there was no you know, clinical entity going on that I was really worried about. And this is literally just you know, extra information that you have, then I'm f- far more likely to put less of an emphasis on that result because it doesn't really help me interpret anything that's going on. It's just a number. Uh, so we always have to look at that in context. and then that's why I, you know, I like to take a number of different data points so that we can tell a more full story. But I, you know, in this space, for sure, people tend to hyper focus on specific things, uh, usually to the potential detriment of other things. because in the human body, biology is complex. If you pull something over here, you know, something else falls
0: off the shelf on the other side, right? And yeah. when you think about when you think about blood chemistry being transient, like you mentioned, I would also assume people are on their best behavior before they get a blood draw, at least as much as they are capable. So what we tell them to be. So what? Yeah. So what? what shows up on that day may not be completely relevant to what yeah. you would actually see yeah, just like when randomly I, pulling them. One when day I send people in for cardiometabolic arm. labs, I want them to have a good night's
1: sleep. I want them to be fasted for 12 hours. Uh, I don't want you to get up and exercise your brains out at five in the morning because that's going to throw things off hormonally. Um, yeah, I just I want it to be under really perfect conditions so that I know at a at a good state, you know, what is what is the system look like? Uh, because as we talked about before, you know, stress on the body is is natural. It's that's fine, uh, but it will change your numbers. And then I don't know how to interpret that necessarily.
0: Is our most studies that are done that give you the information you need to assess someone's blood chemistry. Are they also done with these very specific parameters where you want someone to test under those exact same parameters because then you have a population to more accurately control them to? For sure, every study will be very strict in its protocol
1: for what they need their participants to do. Um, And so and that's part of interpreting and generalizing to your population. You have to look at those methods and say, well, okay, who were the people in the study? What exactly did they have to do? And is that the same as the person that I'm treating? Like, would they actually have fit into this study? Because only then can I really, uh, you know, Attra- attribute the results uh to their case
0: so then moving on to metrics yeah. unless there's something else you want to no, draw us back into proceed so and this is probably a you know a good opportunity for you to pitch specifically what you do with the empowered health report but what metrics uh whether someone's just getting their first uh their first set of uh blood work done because they're you know late 30s, early 40s, they think it's time to start looking at these types of things. Or someone knows that they're not in a great state of health and they want to know the actual reality of it. What are the metrics specific to something like cholesterol that you think somebody should try to get? Because while physicians are getting a little bit better at being up to date of what the most relevant blood metrics are, most family physicians are just doing the same traditional blood work that they've been doing for 30 years. So with what you know now, what are the metrics that people should go out and get or ask their physician for or come to you for if they want the best picture of how their cardiometabolic health is talking about something like that? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. So most primary care screening blood work for you know lipids, blood sugar etc it's it's guideline driven right so if it's not in in the guidelines then it's generally not getting done Uh, so there's a major lag from uh, from new information that comes out you know probably five to ten years before it hits the mainstream guidelines and then it has to work its way into practice so it takes a really long time for these things to happen Um, but for for uh, cholesterol specifically you just get a standard lipid, lipid panel that'll tell you your uh, your total cholesterol, your HDL cholesterol, uh, your triglycerides, and then it will calculate your uh, LDL cholesterol value and also give you a non-HDL cholesterol. So th- those are the, the most important ones. Um, then additionally, everyone should have an ApoB done, the problem is it's not publicly uh, insured in, in Ontario at the present time, I'm not sure about other provinces, uh, but to really be able to interpret those numbers correctly, you really do need that added piece of information and that has just sort of snuck its way into the most recent version of the guidelines. So it'll be interesting to see uh, if that does get picked up for public reimbursement uh, and whether or not it starts becoming more commonplace, but it's just you know, a lipid panel and an ApoB if you're, you know, asking your your doctor to be screened for cholesterol then those are the two things.
0: And what about cofactors? So what about other metrics that are related to cholesterol where you'd want to see these numbers alongside those cholesterol numbers?
1: Well, yeah, so when I do that, I I want to look at somebody's, you know, complete blood count. I want to see their, their kidney function as well. And then liver numbers are really important to screen for the potential for fatty liver. So we look at liver enzymes and ALT would be uh, a common one A GGT is another common one. So if those are elevated, then there could be uh, some sort of issue. Uh, I check people's uric acid levels uh, which can help us round out the story on uh, on fructose So if you're over consuming fructose, then people will often have elevated uric acid levels Um, And then the blood sugar story is you know the other major important piece. So getting a fasting uh, blood glucose level uh, a Hemoglobin a1c which shows you your average uh, blood glucose levels over the preceding Uh, three months or 120 days which is about the average lifespan of a red blood cell Uh, so we look at all those things so if you kind of get that whole package then you can get some some pretty decent uh, uh, guesstimate of your cardiometabolic health and then we need your blood pressure and measurements you know height weight calculate your bmi ideally waist circumference hip circumference as well
0: so, then for the cholesterol specific numbers, and maybe this is a question you don't want to answer on a podcast, but are there thresholds where you would say to somebody, this is a problem? Yep. This I do not want to see. And what are those thresholds for those metrics?
1: Yeah. So, if, from the calculated LDL value, if your LDL is above five, that's potentially alarming and uh, may mean that there's a genetic. Thing going on which is really jacking up your cholesterol levels uh, so that's something that we really need to pay attention to uh, and do some additional testing and you know calculate that person's cardiovascular risk and and go to work on trying to bring that down ASAP absolutely um, you know less than that uh, it again it, it depends on the whole circumstance so there there are th- when we decide to treat there are thresholds for treatment targets Um, But there's not necessarily a level for initiation of treatment that isn't taking into
0: consideration
1: other risk factors.
0: Gotcha. So then what is uh, specific in your report? So if somebody comes in and wants to use your services for your report, what are they going to get with metrics, service, everything that they'll receive from that?
1: sure yeah so alongside the uh, the labs we send a a really detailed uh, client survey which will get from you all of the measurements that we need but then really detailed medical uh, history information including your family history so you need to do a little bit of family uh, research to give us the information that we need to um, to best triangulate everything And then we take that information plus uh, all of the lab results. And then we assemble it into a report that basically breaks down your health system by system. Um, So, you know, it'll go everything from, you know, blood cells, kidneys, liver, blood sugar, blood pressure, etc. And we even get into, you know, well-being scores, screening for depression, anxiety, uh, which can have a really important bearing. We look at sleep, you know, all sorts of stuff so you get a report that shows you your current status for all of those things and then you know we tell you if it's if it's excellent if it's uh potentially at risk or if it's something that you you need to do something about right away Uh, and then along with that are personalized recommendations about steps you can start to take to improve the ones that aren't in the excellent range um, and then we include some education as well to help you uh,
0: understand and interpret your own data. You brought up uh, you brought up family history being a part of the information you want to collect for sure. the report. For yeah. something like heart disease and other atherosclerotic conditions, how tightly correlated is a family history of the same with someone's chances of suffering from that same problem? And is there what specifically are you looking for with that family history? Like this condition starting at this time or with this outcome? Is there a certain sort of? Uh, is there a sort of outline you can yep. put put out there? Yeah. So if you if you have a, a what we call a first degree relative,
1: so that would be a parent uh, or sibling, who had heart disease, so a heart attack or a stroke or peripheral peripheral arterial disease so you know they blocked off an artery in their leg for example if that happened in a man before age 50 or in a woman before age 55 then that potentially is a significant family history for increased risk of coronary heart disease um, and when we look at our, our calculators so we will use something called like the Framingham risk score uh, where we punch in different numbers, uh, including your cholesterol, blood pressure, et cetera. But one of the boxes you check in there is family history of premature heart disease, as I just defined. And that effectively doubles your risk. So if somebody's baseline risk, uh, just based on their personal profile, was you know 7%, that family history alone bumps that up to 14% which is really significant. And it, it it often changes your your risk category, which then changes the conversation about whether or not we need to treat something more aggressively.
0: And is that for uh, for family members? Is that is that like a linear scale? So if you have one grandparent who died of heart disease is having two twice as bad as one <laughs> and three, three times as bad as one. Well, it depends on if they're so if
1: they're in the same family lineage. Which is what I mean, yeah. Right. So if you had, you know, you've got your two sets of grandparents. Yeah. If you had, you know, one on the maternal side with premature disease and one on the paternal side with premature disease. Yeah, that concerns <laughs> me more. <laughs> you still get the same points for it. But, you know, I I would say, well there's a far more a far higher chance that you got the genetic, you know, polymorphisms or mutations that led to that disease it's it's
0: you know the probability is just higher that you got at least one of those right yeah (laughs) is there anything else you want to say about fat fat consumption cholesterol anything along those lines i don't know if you want to talk about the role that diet or that exercise interventions can play in prevention um well we should probably talk about that as its own you know entity yeah um
1: but when it comes to fat honestly i think you know people don't need to worry so much about the you know, consuming fat like if, if you're buying a full fat dairy product it's okay i won't tell on you <laughs> it's fine um you know don't overconsume it just like anything else um and always opt for whole food options it's okay to cook with butter it's also great to cook with olive oil and avocado oil you know it's okay to to use coconut oil, even though it's a more saturated uh, plant-based oil. Like all of these things are fine. Um, and then I would also just mention, so there, there's some information out there to say, you know, the seed oils like canola oil, uh, etc., are you know potentially really harmful for you, um, can increase inflammation and so on. Um, so there's some animal models where that may be true, but when you look at how people behave, you would need to be consuming like gallons of these things for it to make any sort of meaningful difference. So if you're really fretting about you know which oil to choose in, in your <laughs> baking or cooking, uh, don't worry about it that much. honestly, you know, just choose the thing that, that you think is is appropriate. Um, and just with anything, I mean, just just don't overconsume.
0: Yeah. With the, with the seed oils, I think you and I might might see that a little bit differently, because, of course, there isn't very clear evidence that seed oils are problematic, specifically right. in the quantities that the average person would consume them. Right. But there is, you know, just a correlation. But there is there is a fairly tight correlation between heart disease and other diseases that that people face and the amount of seed oil that we are consuming because you when you when you look at that plotted out over time our saturated fat intake and something like our meat intake our red meat intake is has actually declined as those sorts of health issues have risen but the thing that without question has risen in our 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 consumption are those seed oils and of course we're eating more sugar we're eating all these other things too right so you can't really place your finger on it but what are those oils
1: in that's going into your body is more the question of the specific oil that went into that product so if you're following our advice to focus on more of a whole food diet you get to choose the oil that goes into your cooking not I bought a product that's pre-packaged that was made with oil and someone else chose it and used it in industrial in an industrial setting and did who knows what to it. If if you're actually, you know, eating stuff that you choose and you're making it, then you know, that's that's my argument is to say you're probably not using, you know, all that much in whatever it is that you're making that's going to cause a meaningful problem and you're certainly not, you know, subjecting it to crazy high heat pressure, like all this stuff that's going to change the chemical nature of the product itself.
0: Yeah, and that's a fair point. I guess for me, I I look at it the same way I do aspartame, where, yeah, yeah. it's probably going to be difficult to consume the quantity over time that would be required to suffer the consequences that are known of aspartame consumption. Right. But at the same time, there's so many other options. I just won't if, consume yeah. aspartame. Right. So, so like, like you, have why? so many you have so <laughs> many yeah. different fats to choose from, yeah. that at least as of right now, we know don't have that yeah. same amount of consequence. Sorry, my uh, screensaver's just coming on here. If, uh, <laughs> if we're boring your computer <laughs> to death, that's exactly what happened. Usually, it's set uh, set for one hour because I never. Uh, have any, I just want to make sure we're still recording, which it is. Um, But there's so many other options out there. It's like, I get that seed oils are cheap. There's a lot of them. Um, I would just say if you have, if it's feasible for you to use something that is a little less controversial, it's not, it's definitely not going to hurt you. There's only upside to consuming non-seed oil forms of fat for of sure. the kind that yeah, we've yeah. talked about already. Yeah. One other thing that I uh, <laughs> that I wanted to go over, because this, this speaks to the psychology of eating a little bit and why it can be difficult for some people to just simply follow dietary advices. You mentioned at the very beginning of the podcast that a lot of the associated perceived issue with fat is, well, a a calorie of fat is much more energy dense than it would be for something like protein or carbohydrates. Therefore, the consequence is greater. And a lot of people will push back against that and say, well, yes, that's true, but fat fat is very satiating. So Mm -hmm. the more fat you eat, the more full you will feel. Therefore, the less calories you'll actually eat overall. And there's certainly... There's certainly some truth there, but I find people who have serious weight issues, it's not because of a satiety issue. You know, sometimes we, with you talk with you talking about some people producing more ghrelin and therefore having more of a hunger signal, but I find people within that demographic can quite easily feel full and continue eating because there's other things that are actually driving the 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 hunger for food it's not that they are their satiety signals are shut off and they don't know when they're full it's just they can feel full and just continue eating Mm -hmm. in which case fat can become can become a more consequential nutrient in that situation when you're consuming it past hunger anyways do you have any thoughts on that i fully agree with that no i, I
1: think that that's a great point and uh, i probably should have made it myself but <laughs> well that's but, what i'm here but for. the other thing uh, yeah w- from a satiety standpoint and we'll we will talk about this when we talk about protein but if you really want to you know put put the the lid on satiety then my recommendation would be A protein forward approach and, you know,
0: and then have your fat. (laughs) Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. Anything else? I think that's it, man. Okay. Well, let's wrap it up. I don't, I don't think we're going to get to recording protein today, but, uh, whoever's listening to this right now, it should still be on the next episode. Stay tuned. content provided on this podcast is for informational purposes only and does not constitute the providing of medical advice and is not intended to be a substitute for independent professional medical judgment, advice, diagnosis, or treatment. I mean, clearly not when I'm speaking. I'm not a doctor, but that goes for the real doctor, Dr. Appleton as well. You should always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions or concerns you may have regarding your health. You should never disregard or delay seeking medical advice relating to treatment or standard of care because of information contained in or transmitted, huh, transmitted? Yes, information contained in or transmitted in this podcast.